Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Hello and welcome back to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Chris Rudigrat from Sendoso. Chris, tell us about yourself. Thank you, John. Uh, so I'm the CEO and co-founder of Sendoso. I started the company about six years ago, and prior to that, I spent about a decade in software sales in Silicon Valley. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Sendoso is, we are a sending platform that helps other companies send out direct mail, corporate gifts, swag, and we really help them drive pipeline and revenue. Uh, the company's uh, about 400 people. Uh, we've raised about $150 million in funding, and we've got uh, about 1,000 customers. Wow. So how big, how small for the customers? Just to get some sense. So, yeah. So on the small side, it could be a 10, 20, 30 person company. Um, could be uh, on the large side, some of the, the largest, you know, Fortune 10 companies in the world use us too. Some of those uh, big multinationals. And you just manage that process for them. Correct. That's exactly. great. That's great. If you could start us off with a little bit of your scaling journey, I, f I find it's it's helpful for for people to, you know, you didn't just suddenly show up at the number of employees or the the number of customers or whatnot. How did how did this all come about? Yeah, so you know, I think like most companies, you in your early days really try to figure out what I call what most people call product market fit. For me, I was really building the product for myself because I had the pain point being in sales saying, hey, I'm sending out a gazillion emails, I'm getting less replies, I need to book more meetings, I need to drive more revenue. So I was manually doing a lot of gifting and direct mail. And so when we started the company, I said, hey, I want to solve this for myself. So I knew that you know, product market fit for myself was important. Um, and then I, you know, as we started the, to sell to customers, it was pretty apparent that we had product market fit uh, from a founder led or founder sales led model. But really, the next stage for me was do we have kind of go to market fit and can we build a repeatable sales process to drive revenue outside of like me reaching out to folks? And so that was an important part of the next part of the scale, uh, which is, you know, how do you start growing the company and, and you know, build, building uh, playbooks to scale? How did that take place? Because it's one of the things I see a lot with companies. They It's what I call people market fit, where especially yeah. a charismatic founder can get the first 20 customers. And you go, we got product market fit. You go, no, all those guys, are your, they're all in your fantasy yeah. football league. They're going to buy, exactly. they'll buy anything from you. Yeah. Uh, that's not it. How did you, how did you bring like institutional practices or real systems to something that was intuitive or organic? Yeah. So I think the first thing is I, I stepped away. I said, Hey, I'm not going to be doing sales right now, even though it was easy for me to do it. I said, it's more important and more impactful to see if others can do it. And so that's where we brought in uh, a, a two of our first salespeople um, that came in. And then we brought in two SDRs to scale that and another marketer as well. And really built a little mini go-to-market team to start driving um, kind of our <clears throat> revenue in our, our process and our playbooks. And so I would still help in the enablement and definitely still played a big part in kind of the post-sale world where I think that's crucial in the early days. But in the can we can can we can I hire a stranger 
to then sell to another stranger um, was really the most important, one of the most important things for me in the very, very early days. How did you make that work? Or was that, did that just, the product was good enough? It, it Yeah. So I think as part of it, you need to make sure you're, you're hiring people that are for the right stage of the company. You know, there's certain individuals like a salesperson that might thrive or be able to thrive in a very uh, small stage, like anything goes, there's no rules, there's no process environment versus hiring somebody who's been at a, you know, been at Oracle for 50 years or something and like wouldn't know what to do. So I think it's hiring the right people for the jobs, number one, um, you know, uh, helping get, uh, helping be uh, reduce roadblocks and figure out what, what do they need to be successful. So it's, hey, can I help them with the first slide deck? Can I help them with demo practicing? Can I help them with the discovery questions? Can we make sure we have a CRM? Can we make sure we have, you know, a tool to buy leads, et cetera? So it's really and it, making sure that the enablement is there from day one. And I think if you have great enablement in the product market fit or a product that you can sell and you hire the right people, then you're off to the races. Obviously, we're picking on sales, but this could be applicable to any department. Yeah, the early people that you hired in sales, did they eventually crap out because you got big enough or I, I, I don't think I'll use the word corporate enough, but more corporate. Did it get to the point where they say, you know, it's no fun anymore. It worked great. I, I love this place when I could do whatever the heck I want. But now there's somebody saying, hey, I need you to, to update your dashboard and board and show me your metrics. And I'm not all about that. I think it's a mix. We definitely had some reps that thrived in kind of the the chaos and no rules and just just go out there and get meetings and sell things. And those people had sold millions of dollars in revenue for us and have you know uh, really helped in the early days. But decided like, hey, they like to be at the you know the Series C or A stage, not the Series C stage or above. Right. And so right. those folks have went back and started working at other companies. And then we had some folks that have grew with us and. Are now in leadership positions, and so I think it's you've got to you know keep yourself honest and talking to your early employees as you scale to understand: Do you want to be on the next journey? Are you are you the right fit for the next stage of the journey? Um, do you have the right skill sets? Um, and I don't think it's uh, a bad thing to uh, part ways with someone who was great for three years in the early days, but wants to go back to being very early stage, and that's just the natural journey of startups. Right. Yeah, they they they're great in a garage band and not so good in a corporate structure. Exactly. Yeah. So curious, um, where where did you hit bigger snags with headcount or at revenue levels? Because you know people count scale at different places. Where did you run into uh, challenges? You know, I think. Uh, I mean, I want to say like everything's a challenge with everything when you're thinking about a startup. You're or, you're oh, yeah. always juggling resources and uh, you're always juggling uh, priorities. And so I would say like there what there wasn't like I wouldn't say like we didn't have enough people to hit headcount or we didn't have enough pipeline to miss. So there wasn't really like this like big boulder. I think we did it. We've done a good job of continuing to navigate and figure out, hey, we're, we know we need to get here, so let's hire for that, or we know we need to be at this revenue number, so let's make sure we have enough pipeline. So I think it's a, a really important kind of puzzle that you're constantly trying to rework, um, and uh, especially as you scale from the early, early days. People tell me a lot, uh, especially clients tell me that early days, first year especially, every decision can sink the company if you really screw it up. Like your first hire, 
yeah. below that, it could actually wreck the company. At what point did it get to where only one or two big decisions a year could sink the company and you were out of that? Yeah. I call it garage, I mean, I call it garage band, but. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'd agree with that. I kind of disagree that I think in the early days you're making a lot of decisions and you have to make quick decisions fast, but you have to be yeah. agile enough to change course if those decisions aren't the right ones. And so I think it, the problem is making a bad decision and then just letting that decision sit for a long time, yeah. such as hiring a, the wrong person and just letting them kind of hang out for months or years. So I think it's good to make quick decisions. And I'd say it's important not to hesitate in the early days of like, you know, key hires and different initiatives, but it's more important to reflect back and look at the retrospective. Hey, were the, was, is this still the right person? Was this the right decision? And make decisions on top of that. Because um, I do see a lot of founders uh, scared to make important decisions, scared to hire that next person, scared to make a mistake. Um, and then you're, you, you end up just going so slow that you're not, you're not growing and you're not taking risks. So how much of that is, is your ability or willingness to make decisions and how much of that is, if you will, your risk tolerance or your appetite for risk or your agility maybe with risk? So I'd say like, uh, as a founder by trade, you have to be risky. You're most likely leaving an awesome job to start a new company. And unless you're like a fifth time or third time successful founder, this is your third, you know, last two companies IPO'd, you still probably don't have infinite dollars in the bank. So you still have something to prove. And so I think you're, you, you're making a risk. Uh, and so at, you know, you know that you, you have to make this work. And so you're, you're willing to take more risks to make it work. So I think the general appetite is risky of being in a startup. Um, and, but then as you continue to scale, you're de-risking yourself or you're de-risking risky parts of your business. And so I think that's important to, to continue to de-risk yourself as you scale. You're, you're at a thousand customers and how, what's the head count? 400? Yeah, around 400. 400. Uh, how much security is the wrong word. How much more confidence do you have at this stage than you had at an earlier stage where you, where it's still dicier? Um, it's a good question. I, I mean, I would say in my opinion, like my optimism and my, like, uh, my understanding of the business and how we're, and, and my long-term like, uh, projections of the business are, have been the same day one as it is day or year six. So I think as a founder, you also have to be uh, unrealistic and it's sometimes crazy and just insane being like, I'm going to do this. It's going to work. There's nothing better in the world. And you have to have so much conviction. And so slowly that conviction, like you said, builds maybe confidence. Um, Cause you're like, yeah, I did it last year. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. And six years later, you're like, yeah, but I think you don't want to get lazy. You don't want to be so confident. You're like, ah, this is easy now. So let me like, take my foot off the gas or let me like stop making big decisions. So I think it's important to still have the early stage mindset later. Now there might be more rules and more process and, and more, you know, uh, red tape that you have to, to do to, to execute on things. But I think, uh, you know, I, I think why, why some of these larger, larger companies that, you know, go public and looks, you know, slow and stodgy is they've kind of, maybe given up on their, uh, you know, uh, their dreams in a sense and just said, Hey, we can just, 
this thing is just going to work no matter what. And uh, so I think it's important and it's still at five years, six years in to think about it as if it was day one. Would you consider yourself, I mean, you're still, you're not huge, that's for sure. Are you still an, uh, an upstart or a challenger to the incumbents or are you an incumbent? Well, it's, it depends on how you defined what the incumbent was or like what, you know, it, so we came in and really uh, how I look at it is we, there was the existing way of doing things, which was, you know, packing boxes and sending gifts right. at your house. Or there was like the alternative way to drive pipeline, like sending email. Um, and so if you look at like the alternatives, which I like to think about that instead of like competitors and incumbents, we, we've kind of set ourselves up to, to lead this category, this new category of sending platforms. And so when I think about that, we're kind of, you know, we're setting the pace. Um, when I think about what we're competing against, which is the alternatives, there's still a lot of people that don't know we exist that still uh, overuse email in a way that they should be looking at other channels or they are still doing manual gifting and direct mail, which um, they should automate and use technology to be smarter and better at. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting because we're not like in some categories you, you pop in and there's this, you know, old decabillion dollar company that you're trying to disrupt. Right. You know, it's we're just trying to almost disrupt the status quo. So that's interesting. That's interesting. So I'm yeah. curious. Um, there's a trait I find with early early founders. I call it the wisdom of ignorance. Yeah, because there's zero there's zero way to make a s strong case for the fact that you're going to kick ass and you'll you'll be super successful fires down the road. And yeah. they just don't care. They're they're yeah. ignorant enough to kind of like a little kid when they you know when little kids have to sell raffle tickets for a little league or something, they go to yep. the neighbor when there's ten other kids in the neighborhood, yeah. not caring or not realizing that that lady's already been hit eight times. Yep. <laughs> How, do you still have that? Do you do you still or do you lose that at some point? That that uh, um, that wide-eyed wisdom of ignorance. Yeah. I, I honestly, I you know, I think you still have to have that. Uh, I think you've got to level it out with your ability to know that you can't like create thrash in an organization that the size we are, where it's like, I got an idea. Let's everyone stop everything and do this. So you've got to still have big dreams and want to innovate and want to solve big problems for your customers. But you've also got to know the right way to do it too. And so I think in the very early days, you could be like, we need to build this cool new feature. It's going to game change. It's going to be a game changer for us. Let's go do it. Versus maybe now it's like, hey, based on a bunch of customer conversations, let's let's enhance our roadmap for next year to incorporate some of these functionalities. And you're not, you know, you're still trying to take uh, advantage of your, you know, as you said, your like, uh, you know, the 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 kid wisdom of like anything you can do anything and nothing matters mindset. But you need to have that structure to execute because it's just a different playbook. No, that so. makes sense. It makes sense. So I'm, I'm curious, um, people give us their scaling journey and those are always inspirational stories. And yet I realize every founder I've talked to says they also have the crater or the brick wall they ran into or the, the bus they climbed under accidentally and got run over and survived it. Oftentimes that's more valuable than their success story. Yeah. Do you, what's a, do you, do you have a, an episode or, um, an event that you say, oh my God, we've almost wrecked it by doing this. And it turned out to be the most valuable lesson 
we had. Do you do you have an event like that? I don't know if I have an, like a specific event, but I can share like maybe some like maybe lessons learned or things oh, that I might like, either did this well or I would have done this a little differently. But a little bit more macro uh, than just like, hey, like two and a half years ago, this date, this is what I did. But I think a couple of these. So one of them is, you know, I think in the early years, we really focused on like ARR was like, that was what like the investors loved. And I think it's important to really focus on NRR too and make sure that your CX team is equally sitting at the table as your, you know, sales team, because I think that can be overlooked at times. So I think that's something that lesson learned, like, obsess over NRR um, as much as you obsess over ARR if you're, if you're a SaaS company. So I'd say that's important. I think for us in the early days, we built a lot of cool features, but we weren't overly obsessing with product metrics. And so I'd say if I were to go back, I'd say, let's like really make a robust product analytics engine day one. We've caught up, you know, you know, a couple of years ago, we've, we're now better than ever in that. But there was like a in-between period where we're like, are people even using this that much? Do people love this feature? Did we just build this? And how, how is it going? And there was a lot of just building in a bubble at times. So I'd say obsessing right. over product metrics and events day zero would have been, I would have looked back at that. You know, I think there's something to be said around how do you fill the gap between like leadership? Like, you know, at one point you're probably going to have a CMO that was really good in the early years. That's probably not the one that's going to take you from maybe from one to 10 million or from one to 25 million, but not from 25 to 100. It's just different skill sets. And so I think there's how do you think about that transition? When's the right time? How are you kind of have, uh, having your pulse on that so that you're not caught off guard? So I think that's important in terms of transitioning leaders. I think building a recruiting engine, just like you build a go-to-market sales engine, is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a good job of that early on, and it made it a game changer for us hiring last year when it was hard to hire. We had that really strong engine for recruiting. So I'd say like some, some founders I talked to recruiting is like, Hey, I'll get to it. Or, Oh yeah. Like we have somebody that hires like, no, you should be obsessed over it. Just like you're obsessed over your sales engine and your, you know, and, and so I think that's an important uh, lesson learned too. So what I, uh, as, as a, I mean, obviously you're the founder, you're also the CEO, do you have one thing in the organization that you optimize for, or is it department by department? They optimize for different things because they have different functions. Yeah, so we we use a model where we have like our like our north stars, like NRR, year over year growth, ARR. We have a specific one just for us, and I think certain companies do too. So we have like spend on our platform, which is an indicator. Uh, we then look at like we have kind of separate dashboard that looks at some of our efficiency metrics like LTV to CAC or CAC payback, and then I'd say in individual departments like customer success, product, um, et cetera, et cetera, will have their own metrics that kind of lead into those bigger ones. And so typically, when for our planning, we'll say, hey, what are our key metrics? What do we want to hit from a C-level executive team? And then each executive will take those metrics to their team and find important ways that they can influence those metrics. No, it's uh, great. And so that it's seems good. to work extremely well for us. So it's different team to team based on what their role in the company is. Correct. But then they can also all rally behind the shared company metrics and also know that they're impacting those um, as well. Right. 
No, that's, that's great. And so, then I think it's well, equally important to provide transparency, not only in like the annual plan, but then monthly or and or quarterly kind of all hands updates too, so that everyone knows they're working towards the, the common good of the company. I, I know you built a very robust uh, and attractive culture. Curious, you're six years in now. Obviously, you're in the software industry. People talk about technical debt. They say, "Well, we've been we've been at it. We got yeah, you know, we got some technical debt. We got to rewrite everything." I've also found that um, companies at a certain stage start to acquire what I call cultural debt, which is mm-hmm. what got us to here can't get us to where we want to go. Yep. Curious. Do you have any? Uh, were there were there either? Did you? hit periods where you noticed that that was it, where you went from a garage band to the first to a hundred or to 150, or maybe it's, you're hitting it now. Did you bump into that where you say, you know, that was, that really worked as a garage band, but we got, we actually have to rid the company of that. That was, that was cool when there was no rules, but we get sued for that now, or it'll sink us or it won't scale because for whatever reason. I think along the way, that's always happening. I mean, like there's, I remember we used to do this, like uh, we, we call this the idea contests. Like we'd pick a customer and then in the early days, we'd have employees submit their ideas at the all hands for like a gift idea, a gift send or a, um, and so it worked when there was like 50 or 100. Now, if there's hundreds of people submitting, it would take us hours to get through that. And so there's certain fun things along that during your size, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, to your point though, more it, uh, on the side of like, are there certain, I think it's important to notice, going back to an earlier point, that there's certain individuals that are, that love to be a part of the, you know, zero to a hundred employee run or zero to 500 employees and, you know, different stages, they don't work well at other stages. And they could be a culture debt in terms of like, they're like, ah, like too many rules. Like I, I remember when it was five of us and we used to just do whatever. And so I do think it's important to, um, you know, as as a founder and CEO or as other leaders to check in with those individuals and kind of offer them an, an, an off-ramp or an exit ramp where it's like, hey, you cr- you did great for us. You could continue to do well, but hey, you, you've also seen change over the years. And if you want to exit, here's uh, an ability for you to exit with a, you know, a better, you know, kind of comp plan out the door to, to thank you for your time. And I think that's an interesting thing that you have to be aware of so that they're not providing kind of a more negative uh, environment or you're also not creating a negative environment for them on the way out because they're, you know, they did well for four years and now you're like, I don't know what to do anymore. So I think it's really important to be upfront and have those transparent conversations. No, it's great. It's great. There's a theory we have in scaling a company and it's a theory that the company can only scale as well as the CEO scales the impact of their role. True or false? You know, I think as a company scales, the CEO needs to scale in their ability to uh, continue to develop talent, to continue to be coached and and learn how to be a better leader, to continue to bring in new talent around them. I don't, I I think the CEO is extremely important, but I think you're, you know, at, at, certain stages like our stage i'm i have you know dozens of other leaders at the company that are making an impact that i'm no longer like single threaded like the the house hasn't fallen off if i don't show up one day so i think it's important as a ceo leader to continue to be visionary to be out talking to customers to help understand to continue to, to build a uh, company culture and morale 
but I think it's uh, unfair to think that the company is completely dependent on the CEO's uh, everything the CEO does and that you've, you hopefully hire other C-levels and VPs and directors uh, that you believe are the, the best people to go and continue to lead the company forward. So no, it's great. It's great. I'm sure you, you had your own version of this. What order did you bring on C-suite level talent as opposed to, you know, we can get by without with a controller because we don't really need a CFO until we hit this. I mean, yeah. we have those conversations all the time. What order did you bring on real, what I'll call real C-suite talent? So we brought on a COO super early who was our COO slash CFO. Um, okay. And so we brought in a, probably our 10th employee. Um, oh, wow. So pretty early on. Uh, That was partially due to two reasons. One is we have a pretty robust financial infrastructure because of the dollars in, dollars out. So we're not just pure SaaS. There's also all of the gifting and all the dollars associated with that. So there's a lot of money flowing through our system, Um, hundreds of millions of dollars that we want to make sure that we account for the right way. So it was important to bring on an early finance leader, but we also were able to double down on kind of a COO slash CFO who could help take on other aspects of the business as we scale. Um, so that was a super early hire. I think then there was a CMO hire, uh, probably uh, maybe a year after. Then then came our CRO, then a CTO, then uh, a CPO, our chief product officer, then a chief people officer. Um yeah, I think that's kind of the. the... What, I'm cur- just curious if you bought brought on a COO slash CFO at the, as the tenth employee, which is super early for either one. Yeah. At what point did you split the roles because they really you really needed two people heading different departments? Um, so we've been uh, blessed that we've been able to keep that the same uh, kind of role combination till now. Wow. We've we've. Uh, built uh, robust organizations under both. So we have a really strong operations group. We have a really strong um, uh, like business operations group, really strong finance group under each. So those were all very uh, important and impactful uh, to build strong kind of VPs and directors under. No, it's great. So you built, you built layers of, of, of leaders yeah. as, to, as opposed to super high-end leaders and then a big drop-off. Correct. Got yeah. it. Got it. Was there an actual um, episode or inflection point where you knew, gosh darn it, we that this was the day we went like this, or or was it just you've consistently grown and yeah, I mean, kept moving. It's a good question. I think that I would say there's probably like a handful of inflection points if I were to look back of like what were those key moments that really what were the, what were the moments of the events? Yeah, helpful for people. You know, yeah. So I think you know, back when there was four of us, there's two engineers and me and my co-founder. I think getting our first paying customer was one of those moments because I think that's a big. I mean, it seems obvious, but it was a big moment of us saying like people are willing to pay for the software we just spent like a year building. Um, so I think that was an inflection moment. I think then uh, later that year when we had just if I could, the software at that point was a. Uh... MVP or it was, it was really well, better than that. I mean, it was MVP ish. I mean, you could go in, you could execute on what our promised pro, uh, value proposition one and how we solved our uh, problem for our customers, which is, you know, our problem, the customer, we were, the problem we were solving for our customers was, 
hey, I need to drive more pipeline. And to do so, I need to send out gifts and direct mail. And so with our first version, you could go into the platform, select what you wanted to send, click send, and it would send out and it would sync to your CRM and it would help them deliver pipeline. So it, we delivered on our promise. I think, it, you know, was there as many options of things to send today? No. Was there as many integrations? No. Was was the roles and permissions, you know, more robust today yet? So was there a lot more features? But the, still the same value proposition um, was apparent and delivered on. So and you, could, and you could keep your promise. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that was probably the first. Then I'd say like maybe a handful of months after that, there was maybe like that point, like six or seven of us. And we had too many customers. So we needed to hire an yet another CSM. We had a CSM, one CSM, but that CSM was already underwater. And so that was an inflection point, like, wow, this is growing actually faster than we thought. Um, so I think that was big. Um, and then I think a few months after that, we were able to get a 350K like pre-seed kind of uh, round, which then we were like, okay, that's a big inflection point. Now we're not growing off of being bootstrapped anymore. Now we can like invest ahead of schedule a little bit. Right. Um, and then I think the next three were kind of the funding rounds where we were able to get you know, the series A, B, and C, which I think are good inflection points because to get that investment, you put a lot, you, you look back at the years prior to all of your hard work, you put together the slide deck of like all your growth. And, and then you also have to forward look. So while, you know, maybe it's, you know, saying, Hey, we're celebrating our series A. And, and, and I think some, some companies like doing that. Some companies it's, you know, just another stepping stone. I think behind the scenes, there's a lot of work going into what went into that, what got you to that point and what's going to get you to the next point. So it's more than just the, the series A check or the series B or the series C, but it's the culmination of, of all of your metrics and all of your potential growth. So, yeah. And so you've done your series C right now. Correct. Will you do a D or no? Yeah, so I think we are, uh, you know, I think the the market conditions have, have, have obviously changed as, as everyone's seen. Um, so we could create a, an opportunity for ourselves to do a D if we needed to, but we also don't want to make us dependent on the D to, in order to survive. So I think it's more of the optionality to do it when we need it, not the option, not the definitive factor that we're going to have to do it tomorrow or, or else. Right. So right. <clears throat> I think it's yep. best to be opportunistic there. We always we always ask all of our guests um, if we visited your junior high school in seventh or eighth grade, and then went to Vegas and placed a bet. Would we have bet on on you in seventh or eighth grade to become a a successful entrepreneur and and founder of a SaaS based software company? What what evidence would there have been in seventh grade? Yeah, so I'd say probably the uh, things going for me was. Uh, into sports, so soccer and baseball, so super competitive, which I think is a good trait. Um, what you know, good grades, A's and B's, good so at math. Is that competitive or gritty? They're different. Um, I think competitive. Yeah. Um, like you want to win. win. Yeah, I want to win. Yeah, so I think yeah. that's uh, tough, which is different than wanting to win. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think uh, will to win. Good at. Good school, I think, is an uh, is an indicator of just being able to dedicate your time and focus on a subject, and you know, get get a good grade. Do and then I was thing. kind of entrepreneurial, money driven at the time too. Like I had had a mistletoe stand that I used the money to buy, like a Nintendo sixty four, or you know, I was the kid on the neighborhood that, like, if you're going out of town and you needed your animals watched or like your plants watered, like you, you hire me. 
Yeah. Um, or if you needed your like, uh, you know, your lawn mode or, you know, things like that. So I uh, was always trying to pick up an extra little job here or there to, to get money. So I think that was another uh, thing that you could probably bank on. And that's, that's what, that's hustle, I would call that. Yeah, I think that's hustle and uh, and motivation. You know, like I was motivated by I want the new video game system, and my parents weren't just going to give me cash for it, so I needed to find a way to get the cash to get the video game system. I don't usually ask because it's too personal for some people, but yeah, um, was the socioeconomics such that you had to make your own money if you want to go to the movies or if you wanted to buy a Nintendo sixty four or or was uh, that? Uh, I would say like. Uh, kind of mixed. I got an allowance. I could go to the movies, but my parents were also not like, uh, they're kind of middle-class. So it's not like they're like, Hey, here's your car. Hey, here's your car. You know, it was more like I had to work for things that were above and beyond the normal. Like I could have gotten a Nintendo 64 for Christmas, but if it's July and I'm like, I want one, they're like, all right, you know, like better go mow the neighbor's lawn. Uh, (laughs) And so I think it was the right amount of, you know, I wasn't like, hungry and starving, but I wasn't like overly, you know, had infinite resources. It was enough to make me want to hustle and get motivated. Um, I'm always curious where the, where the entrepreneur or the ambition comes from. And sometimes it comes straight from necessity. Yeah. What I find is the kids that have that desire to make their own money, like the, I did this and I can do whatever I damn well want with the money because I made it. Yep. That's a much better thing than to say, um, like I, I have this conversation with, with adults now. They say, "Well, we have ki- we have our kids earn money around the house," and I think it's not the same because if you yeah. have to do if you have to take the leaves out of the gutter of the neighbor and they don't yep. do a good job, they won't pay you. And exactly. If you do it at your house. That's different, and it's there's value in having a cranky old neighbor that won't yeah. pay until it's perfect. Because kids have to figure all that stuff out. Yeah, I think that's different. There's a value in that. Like a chore versus a job. I feel like doing something at your house is a chore that you're going to have to do no matter what. Money is there just because your parents are going to give it to you anyway as your allowance, but they're going to give you a little carrot like, hey, I'll pay you for this, but you know, you'd have to do it anyway. So you might as well do it right. versus a job where you're like, all right, I, you know, you don't have to do it. You don't have to take, you know, leaves nope. out of your neighbor's gutter, but if you do it and you get the money, then you have something to show for it. Right. So. No, that's, uh, well, and you get the, you get the, uh, I, I, maybe it's the self-satisfaction of saying I did a good job here and I, oh, wow. I, I made the 20 bucks. Um, uh, yeah, you spend the 20 bucks a lot differently. Yeah. Exactly. No, that's great. That's great. Chris, um, Thrilled to have you on the show. I, uh, for those who don't know, we did this four weeks ago and we had horrible audio and we were both frozen <laughs> and we both uh, uh, had uh, bad audio and bad video. And uh, so I appreciate you coming back and uh, and rejoining us. Uh, any parting words for our audience? Um, I think for me, it's if you want to connect with me and learn more about my story, and I'm happy to connect and talk about uh, other guest stories. So find me on LinkedIn, um, email me. It's Chris, K-R-I-S at Sendoso.com and um, love networking with other uh, like-minded individuals. That's great. We'll put, we'll put all your contact information in the show notes. We can get that from Beautiful. you afterwards. Um, thank you for joining us today and sharing your, uh, your journey and your stories. Uh, it's, we can only do this with people that have, that have walked the walk. You can't, there's, there's no theory in any of this stuff. So I really appreciate you joining us today. You got it. Thanks for having me on, John. I'll see you later. All right. Until we meet again, all the best for Genius at Scale. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, invest three minutes in our scalability index. 
It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.